Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Pursuing your future doesn't end at 40. In fact, it may mark the beginning of knowing who you are, what you're capable of, and what you really want. But knowing what's next and how to get there can be a challenge, especially when old narratives play on repeat. Liberty Road is here to share stories so that you can consider your possibilities, pursue your purpose, and move into your future with intention. I'm your host, Netta Jones, and we're here to listen, learn, and liberate dreams one episode at a time. Well, hello, Liberty listeners. Welcome to another episode of Liberty Road. Today, I'm in for a treat. You're in for a treat. We get the honor of listening to Elise Lunin talk about her story, how she came to be the New York bestselling author that she is, and very specifically about the book that she wrote, why she wrote it, why she launched her podcast, all the things. But I'm going to let her tell you the story. Elise, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. So let's just dig right in. What prompted you to write on our best behavior? So I have, starting in my early 20s, I um, was a magazine editor at Condé Nast in New York. I, you know, I was barely scraping by and I was asked to ghostwrite a book. I've now co-written or ghostwritten 12 books. I bring that up because it's an illustrative of a pattern in my life, which <laughs> is that I really have no problem doing the work and I've preferred not having my name on it. I love ghostwriting. My first job at magazines was at a magazine without bylines. Like I never pursued being a bylined writer where this was my opinion and my view and... Wait, wait, I have to stop you. Why? I think it goes back to the cultural conditioning of my childhood, of so many of our childhoods. I'm not alone in this. Mm -hmm. The book on our best behavior is really like a bit of cultural therapy. 
which I was just in Australia and someone was like, you know, this you're a cultural therapist. I was like, that I'm taking on the road. Thank you. Wow. That's a moniker to go with. Yeah. I don't have a license to be a therapist, <laughs> but I'll call myself a cultural therapist. But, you know, I grew up in Montana in the woods. Books were my best friends. Sounds like a cliche, but that was my life. You know, my mom was not particularly interested in cultivating our social lives. We went to a hippie alternative school with six to eight kids per grade. So like these are like, you know, familial relationships when you start in preschool. And it was a different time. So, you know, my mom wasn't setting up play dates or a lot of extracurricular activities. It was a lot of time at home with my older brother, who's ironically, not ironically, a book editor, reading. I had a horse. I mean, it was full of privilege and nature, but I spent a lot of time alone reading. And I think that there were a couple of things. Like one, to me, a book, being a writer, like was the most exalted state. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of cultural reverence for authors. And so I just could never imagine putting myself in that stable Mm -hmm. as much as I would make my own fake newspaper and... (laughs) was obsessed with magazines and writing and media. So one, I just sort of held myself apart. I still struggle to call myself a writer, even though practically I am a writer. I still like to think of myself as a cultural therapist or an editor or many other things, media executive. It's very embarrassing, humiliating for me to call myself a writer. And then it's just being this performative child that would really apply myself to whatever was in front of me. So whether that was competitive mogul skiing or horseback riding or math, I really wanted to excel and be recognized, to be special, to be seen. You know, I think every child feels that animating impulse of like, see me, recognize me. What's my sort of like genius point? Not like I am a genius, but what is this in me? What's my rare gift? What am I holding here? We're all uniquely gifted. Very much believe that. But as a child, one of the prominent, predominant messages from my parents was, be humble. Don't get a big head. Do not draw attention to yourself. So I was like very good, very schooled in being quietly excellent. And I would never draw attention to my excellence. I would just wait for it to potentially be recognized or not. But it was never, it was like something that I saw as shameful to want to be recognized. So like many women, you demur, you deflect, you're like, ah, it's not really me. You know, we all know this language. It's a really tight rope, though, as you're talking about it. And I know from the book and from fangirling over you for years and knowing your story of going to an Ivy League school, being a, a medal winning skier when you talk about excelling quietly like you were really excelling this wasn't Mm -hmm. like just pat on the back excelling you were showing up in a way that people only dream of and yet you still were holding on to this need or this narrative that humility wins over or trumps over this yeah I would even distinguish and say like modesty because I think Uh. humility which comes from hummus like soil to be rooted Humility, I think, is our birthright as well to sort of recognize that I see myself very much as like an expert channeler, honestly, where I'm really good at bringing things down and spilling them into the vertical. And 
I'm very rooted. I don't think I'm like egomaniacal, delusional, distorted monster. But (laughs) it was this modesty. It was this like playing small, minimizing. Because also, and I write about this, you know, extensively in the book, in the chapter on pride, because the book is structured around the seven deadly sins, that we are merciless to women who we perceive to be too big for their britches, um, who need to be put back in their place. We do this to famous women routinely, daily. We celebrate them when they're up and coming, and then we set out to destroy them, all of us, culturally. It's like our favorite pastime. And so I think that we can say that those women have nothing to do with us, but as we're growing up, as we're observing culture and understanding how to survive within it, this is why my parents didn't want me to be crowing about my achievements. They recognized that I would be destroyed, right? That the tall poppy in the poppy field gets cut down, that I should not be turning myself into a target for others to diminish and destroy. Whether we're conscious of it or not, and I don't think we're conscious of it, we watch what happens to women and we say, like, don't be visible, don't be seen. Because if you dare to share your gifts with the world and you're not appropriately defensive, self-deprecating, or enough of a disaster, (laughs) they will come for you. And we know this. Like, look at any famous woman and you can mark her trajectory. It's why Taylor Swift has an army. Yeah, It's why the Swifties exist. Because I think there is a communal recognition And I know that they can be like slightly deranged, particularly around her (laughs) ex-boyfriends. I don't know that much about them. But I think that they're an understandable response to what typically happens to women like Taylor Swift and has certainly been attempted. And they are there to say like over our dead bodies, don't you dare. We will come for you. It's interesting. I want to do more thinking and work on it because I don't know enough about it, but To me, I'm like, this is, it's the we've got her back campaign during the election. It's like, we recognize that this is the pattern. Yeah. Did your brother get that same sort of modest? No. So it wasn't like a family passing on of this is a value that we hold modesty is. It's this is reserved for Elise or for women. And brother, go ahead. Yes. Shine your light. A thousand percent. And I just want to say, too, that my parents are not patriarchal, like deeply Mm. feminist, very supportive of me. There was never any like, you need to have a traditional role in your house, et cetera. Like in in no way have they stopped me from achieving on the material plane. It has primarily been out of concern for when people will invariably come for me. That's what I think is driving them. I think it's entirely from a place of protectiveness And cultural conditioning that they're somewhat aware of, but not entirely aware of. But it's funny. It's like they've read my book. We're a very honest and open family. I think people are like, have your, you know, they're (laughs) up in arms on behalf of my parents. I'm like, my parents are good with this. This is all stuff that they own. And these are family jokes. But even so, my parents have read the Pride chapter, which is a lot of it is about only at age 40 being willing to sort of be heard, be seen and speak for myself. And I wrote this piece just last, I think this past January for Oprah 
about how I think wholeness is the new wellness uh-huh. and the hope that we can evolve to the next not-so-binary stage. And Oprah talked about it in a video. She mispronounced my name, but I don't care. <laughs> Oprah name-checked me, which was really big deal to me. <laughs> it's a big deal. How did she pronounce it? I can't, like Lonan oh, or okay, okay, okay. Lohanan or something like that. You were making me nervous. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, no, no. But it was a big moment for me. And I texted it to my family text chain. And my brother was off bird watching somewhere. And he side texted me and was like, send me the PDF. I want to read the story. My mom had read the story before. And... Nothing. There's cricket. So my brother's like, this is great. Uh, Not in the chain, but to me. Mm -hmm. And then maybe like 24 hours later, my brother sends a text that a photo that he had taken of a bird had been chosen as like the hero image on birdwatchersunite.com or something. So he sends it to this group chain and it just lights up. And my parents are like, Ben, this is amazing, beautiful shot, you know, oh, Oh, you know, on and on, Ben. And I was like, you guys. Come on. Are you kidding? Yeah. Come on. And my mom called me like in a defensive huff. was like, I couldn't open. I didn't know what I couldn't. I was like, it's fine. I'm just pointing out the pattern that you guys continually, despite me writing a whole book about it. I do not know how to handle it when I am publicly praised or get attention. It makes you guys so uncomfortable. So we're still in the family pattern. Well, you mentioned that in the Netflix series that you were a part of and the same thing, that they hadn't watched it. And I was like, what? How is that possible? Mm -hmm. It just didn't say anything. Yeah. Again, um, I was in the New York Times. Yes, you were. Style section recently and my parents just, did, I think there's – I understand, too. It's scary. It's really scary. And so I get it. But, yeah, it's not like they're able to say and, – and to be fair to my parents, I was recently in Montana where I'm from, and they organized – I did a little reading situation Q&A at one of the local bookstores, and they rallied all their friends. It was, oh. you know, my teacher's this man who owned this bookstore in town who had encouraged my parents to apply for this scholarship that my brother won at this boarding school where we both ultimately attended. Many people who had been present from my childhood, watched me grow up, et cetera. It was amazing, like such a warm hug. And my dad is very sweet and in touch with his feelings, which is rare for a man. And he cried like through the whole thing. So it's not that they're not really proud of me. Sure. It's that it's clouded by fear, which is not uncommon. I'm sure so many, any woman listening is like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what she's talking about. Yeah. One of my closest school mom friends is a badass in an industry and a big cultural industry that we all care about. She was recently promoted to president. Yeah. And I... I was like, can you send me the press release? And she was like, oh, no, press release. I don't want anyone to know. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, my job's not materially changing. I mean, it's it's like more comp, et cetera, for her. But she was like, I don't need anyone to know. Mm. She doesn't want to inspire their envy, another of the seven deadly sins. And to her end, there's just no upside 
at all in being seen or celebrated for her ascension. And that's, I think, just so typical for women where it's like, do not look at me. Please do not look at me. I'm just over here doing my thing and do not come for me. I'm already on my knees. There's nothing you can say about me that I wouldn't already say about myself. And it, you know, comes back to the central thesis of on our best behavior, which is in many ways that women are conditioned for goodness and men are conditioned for power. And reputational harm to a woman, she's a bad person, she's toxic, she's an unloving, bad mother, she's not present, whatever it is, it's the worst thing you can do to a woman. She's a bad ally, let's cancel her. You know, you just watch women just say like, I'm bad, not I'll do better, not like we're all learning, not I'm doing my best, whatever. Sure. Anything that you might hear from a man, it's I'll, I'll just leave now. But on the flip side, a man can do anything, can commit atrocious crimes <laughs> and potentially go to jail. And as long as we still perceive him as powerful, we will revere and respect him. Yes. Unfortunately, we've seen that firsthand, right? Yeah. It's all over the place. As you were talking about your parents, it strikes me as it was their reflex, because you were saying, of course, they're proud, but it was their reflex to protect you and to praise him. That was just mm-hmm. their condition. And probably for many of us as parents and and as daughters, we're familiar with that. Yeah. It also strikes me when you're talking about your friend who became president, that part of what she's protecting from is not just the patriarchy. It's the response of the patriarchy, but it is us. It is other yeah. women and our response to who does she think she is and yes. the discomfort it brings up in us. Well, who am I? If she is that, then who am I? And where is there a gap in my life, which to be honest is so much about the work that we're doing here at Liberty Road. Like what is this middle season of life offering you? How do you look back at what wasn't, what was, what is, and then rethink with intention about what can be, what will be? And I think that your book is one that gives us greater context because we can Mm -hmm. internalize so much of those things and think that it's just us. But I know for myself in reading your words, it was like, this is the soil I've been growing in. Yes. So I'm the product of that soil. How do I uproot myself and replant myself to beat this metaphor? How do I uproot myself and, and help others to do the same so that we can rethink what we've consumed and assumed? Yeah. I mean, and this was the genesis too. what you're talking about for wanting to write the book was observing in myself and certainly observing in culture, both in after the 2016 election, but just feeling it with every fiber of my body of I can survey. I've had some amazing bosses, male and female, and mentors of both genders. And yet, like, I think about where we are in terms of our inequity and in culture. I think about who has really gotten behind me and supported me. And... I recognize that, yes, of course, there are sort of misogynists afoot, sure, certainly, but I couldn't locate them in my own life Mm -hmm. and in my own experience. And yet, 
there is this persistent chorus of like, it's the men, it's the men, it's the patriarchy, which I couldn't, like, I was like, what is the patriarchy and where did it even come from? You know, we talk a lot about it. It's like, it's they, them. It's like, what are we talking about? Are we talking about Mitch McConnell? What are we talking about? (laughs) But then to recognize too, sure, there's certainly inequity baked into all of our systems, into our laws, not disputing that, nor am I disputing sexual harassers and the presence of truly nefarious men in our culture. I'm not excusing or allowing them. But to me, it does not explain what's happening in our culture when I talk to this friend of mine who's most scared of other women. And I really wanted to get into that core wound, that wound of betrayal, scarcity, envy, you know, Mm -hmm. so much of the chapter on envy is about this, because what I see happening too, which gives me a lot of concern now is two things. One, let's go sanitize patriarchy with our femininity. We'll just replace some men with women and everything will be fine. So I don't think that that's a solution. I think this is about balance in each one of us, letting our masculine and feminine come up for men, letting their feminine come up, et cetera. Like it's not about replacing a hierarchical dominance-based patriarchal culture with a hierarchical dominance-based matriarchal culture. Like that's just the same thing with a different gender. This to me is about an energetic shift. But then also I feel unfortunately like we're in this strain and we see this with allyship too, where it's like this reflexive armoring around actually doing the work and having the conversation And saying, let me go there and sit in the discomfort and excavate all the ways I've been privileged by my race, my class, my gender or not. And that we're doing the same thing to other women with our own internalized patriarchy and misogyny. And so this envy chapter is the one that most women want to talk about. Because right now we're in a hashtag women supporting women, hashtag female empowerment. It's the men culture, right? And to me, it's like we're papering over a lot of pain and betrayal and essential conversation about all the ways in which women do not feel like they can get behind other women. And we're not attending to all of those core wounds where it's like, well, the person who was really terrible to me at work was a woman. The person who denied me a raise and a promotion and sent me elsewhere was a woman, right? I'm worried that we're gaslighting each other in this hashtag women supporting women culture without actually attending to what would that mean? And what does that look like rather than some performative action? You know what I mean? Like there's something that feels so much more essential. And I get, I understand like the fact that we've never had a modeling for what it looks like to go after what you want in the world. We're called ambitious, greedy shoes. We are stewing in scarcity where there's really only room for one of us in part because we create that instead of saying, how do I, how do I take his job? We're like, how do I destroy and dethrone her? So So much of it, I think, is us coming alive to this programming and being able to get really super honest about what is alive in us and and the discomfort. 
that's really why I wanted to write this book. Why do I cling to this idea of goodness? Why am I so vulnerable? Why are we all so vulnerable and susceptible to the assignation of being bad? And then how do we work with each other to start collectively processing these feelings and so that we can actually get on side with each other? Where's that book? Is that book coming? <laughs> As my youngest son, my 14-year-old, says, I'm, presu- I'm not presumed innocent until guilty. I'm guilty. I'm guilty mm-hmm. of being a part of the patriarchy because I'm a man. And I'm 15 and I really haven't done anything <laughs> yet. I know. And I didn't choose this. Yeah. And I said, this is impacting you negatively as well. Do you understand that? This isn't us against them. This is impacting all of us. And the clarity that you bring to this, to me, shifts the way men view their own identity relative to this idea of patriarchy. Like you in a room with men who are defensive about this, soften the blow, not because you're not holding responsibility where responsibility needs to be held, but because you're articulating something that is much more human and much less binary. Yes. That's why I'm saying, where's the book? Where's the book, Elise? No. <laughs> you're the person. And I really, really want men to read this book. Yeah. And I have yet to be interviewed by a single man. I think that there's two things at play. I think that there's fear that this is like men are terrible and are villains and we are victims. Uh, it's not that book. This is a book about personal responsibility and taking ownership over ourselves and our own actions and reactions, not to blame victims either. It's trying to move us out of a victim-villain binary because we waste a lot of time there rather than getting to work before our collective extinction. And then what would make me really sad is the feeling that men are not that interested in women. I think men are really struggling And I think understanding the psychology of women would be quite relieving for many of them. Because what I found in the process of writing this book is, you know, I'm married to a feminist, very sweet guy. I'm the primary breadwinner. I'm also the primary parent. I'm the primary everything, in part because I'm extremely competent and fast and efficient. And that is not how my husband functions. He's the beneficiary of my competence. And there's a lot of learned helplessness. So I've spent a lot of years, and I write about this in the Sloth chapter, and I really didn't even understand what was alive in me until I wrote this chapter, which every woman can relate to. It's about this, like, there's always more doing to be done, will never be done. And It's all about subjugating our ones to other people's needs and this endless fucking doing, right? There's always more to be done as a mother, always more to be done to the house, always more to be done at work. And what I recognized was that my husband said to me, you know, since we've been married, you've never watched more than 20 minutes of Netflix with me without getting up to do something. Meanwhile, I'm like, well, it's like, I'm so happy for you that like you have your spot and your, you know, (laughs) drink ring and and he was like, but why can't you just sit here and do nothing? My immediate defensiveness is like, well, I have to do this and do this. You know, I'm up, I'm getting my computer, I'm multitasking, I'm loading the dishwasher. And then I had to recognize in that moment, yes, I desire more equity at home. 
And this internalized cattle prod is me. My husband is not saying, I expect you to make dinner and to do the dishes, and I expect the laundry to be done, and I expect you to have five part-time jobs. This is me. As much as I've wanted to place him as the external pressurizer, it's not him. He is saying, can you just hang out and watch a movie with me? Can you be with me? Yeah. And so that's a really hard shift because it is so much easier to blame, to externalize what's present in me, that I cannot sit in the discomfort of a not perfectly clean and organized house, that I cannot sit with my feelings that I'm not as present for my children as I should be, that I can't sit with my discomfort, that I don't really want to play with them. No. So I'm going to be virtuous and do work to afford them more opportunities because I don't want to go jump on a trampoline. Yeah. Been there. (laughs) I have to attend with that rather than project it and place it on Rob. I'm not saying he doesn't need to pick, but what also happens is that when I am like, oh, I'm just going to try and sit here and there's stuff that needs to be done, like there are dishes in the sink, he like puts them in the dishwasher. Wow. Look at that. Because (laughs) I allowed more than like 10 minutes, 10 seconds for that action to happen. It's amazing what happens when I actually create room by not all the doing. Anyway, that was my TED Talk. You've stressed me out and and made me, are keeping me in check, but thanks for that. (laughs) Maybe more than a cultural therapist. Maybe there's a little therapist in there too. What in unpacking all of this for yourself, because you talked about this coming from within, but it's so much a gift to all of us. The book is anthropological. It's historical. Your writing is, you've just wordsmithed your way into articulating things that we haven't been able to. You gave us language that I didn't think we had. And yet it is the stories of your brother, your best friend, your Mm. brother's husband who passed, your mom, your dad, the stories of Montana, the stories of your early relationships. Like all of these stories that you unpack are, are very intimate and you're letting us into that space. It's unusual in that way that a book can bring so much together. Mm. Was that by design or is it as you sort of let it roll out of you, you know, was it equal parts research and tethered to your own story? How did that happen? Yeah. So I didn't pitch it and it's, I don't know what percentage of it is memoir, but I didn't pitch it in that way in part because like It was hard enough for me to pitch my own book, much less be like, and I'm going to write a book about myself. Yeah. That was another step. That was me being taken by the nose by my editor and brought closer and closer and closer to the material. Because what I pitched, what I wanted to do was write this clinical, um, slightly abstract diagnosis of culture and to synthesize all the research and all the other thinkers on these topics. And as I worked through the material and brought myself into it slightly in order to contextualize the sins, my editor was like, Elise, you're going to have to walk us through this material. Mm. Like, where are you? 
And I recognize that part of my own healing and part of our cultural healing is exactly what I was trying to get at but avoid, which is we can't solve this on the external until we attend to the internal. I thought I would be done in a year. You know, that's how I've always done books when I've co-written. This was like two years of intensive work. The second year was revising, and that was the hardest part because that was where I had to put more of myself into it because I had to walk the walk, which is we can rail against inequity in the workplace in terms of the housekeeping that women are doing and the emotional caretaking that women are doing, and we can rail against the inequity at home. But until I look at this in my own life and the way that I am enforcing this myself, no one is making me do this, then I can't prescribe Mm. or diagnose culture and ask people to do this work if I'm not also willing to do the work. And what's been so thrilling about the book being out in the world and being in conversations like this is, and I was just with a group of women this week where we were talking about our wanting, and it was like quite stunning and very vulnerable, et cetera, is that this this work, shifting culture, being deviant needs to happen collectively. You can't just be like a lone soldier out there. I mean, some women are brave enough to do it. They're, you're just perceived as some crackheaded, ambitious, whatever it is. We need to do this together. We need to have each other's backs as we do this. And so I, I really needed to participate because I knew it was in me, but to actually confess it on the page, my own envy, which is really what brought me to write my own book and have my own podcast was like, why her and not me? And to recognize how I was taking all this wanting and siphoning it through other people because that seemed like the more appropriate, less prideful, better, more good thing to do. And I had to acknowledge that on the page. And, you know, what's really like, this is the promise of collective work. So I was doing this workshop I sort of joined last minute because someone fell through and it was a group of women. And I've been with this group of women before, maybe 40 women in the room. I didn't know everyone and I don't know them well. I know the some of the facilitators. So we were like, what should we do? And I was like, well, what if we do a workshop where everyone has to actually own what they want? Like the thing that's so embarrassing, humiliating, prideful that they have never even really acknowledged it to themselves, much less said it aloud. Yeah. And we're talking about the book, and people are talking sort of vaguely around it, and you can feel the scarcity in the room. You can feel how uncomfortable everyone is, the squirminess. And this is an amazing group of women, really interesting, clearly interested in the same ideas. Sure. So I was like, well, this will be interesting to sort of like watch how our wanting runs up into scarcity. So we spend, people write, and then they confess Women were crying. There was a lot of humiliation. It was really interesting to watch the processing. One, everything that was said, some things were audacious, but reasonable. There was nothing that anyone said that was like, wow, you're delusional loser, right? 
So first of all, it was like watching people quake as they're saying something that you're like, of course you should want that. And that is an entirely reasonable want was really moving. Yeah. And then the second thing that was incredibly interesting and is something that I believe intensively, nobody wanted the same thing. Mm, what a gift. And very few wants were even in the same lane. Even amongst a group of women that theoretically are aligned or have the same sort of intentionality, sure. you would think that they were all wanting the same yeah. thing. Vying for the same small spot. Vying for the same seat. Wildly divergent. Like, wildly. And that's the thing. Like, we are all uniquely gifted, uniquely abled, here yeah. for different purposes. But in that scarcity before we started, it was like you could feel it. This embarrassment about wanting and like if I want someone else doesn't get what they want in this musical chairs game that we all play. And it was fascinating. And then to watch sort of the space enter the room and this like reminder of like, oh, right, I could help her. I could support her in her elder care dream. And I could support her and her stand-up comedy dream. Yeah. And guess what? It costs me nothing. It only creates more spaciousness and more room. And even capitalizes on whatever gifts you have to offer them in that yes. process. You get to bring your whole self in supporting them. Yes. And men are not governed by this. You watch them, you watch even men in the same lane and the way that they get behind each other and support each other and get bigger and bigger and bigger and take up more and more and more space. And women are not doing that. Mm. We have to get past that. Yes, let's get past that. Your work will help us to get past that. I mean, you're giving me language. I'm like, I'm going to incorporate that. I'll, I'll credit you, but I'm going to incorporate that no, in, the, okay. in the event when we're all together. Because I imagine that we all find ourselves in those situations where we're in a room with other women and, oh my gosh, if we have to be vulnerable, like the tingling in our body of like, I don't know which vulnerable should I be? Should I be completely vulnerable, sort of vulnerable, feigning vulnerability? Like, which one do I bring to the table? And then... The other thing you said that I thought was so life-affirming is to have the woman who was quaking as she announced this audacious thing that she dreamt for herself and have everyone else with a straight face nod. Like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And it took everything in her to say it and nobody was surprised or nobody was shocked. And nobody was, was judgmental. Yeah, yeah. And then it was this like opportunity to reflect back and say – as you heard other people say what they wanted, were you filled with contempt and judgment? And or were you like, oh, yeah, of course, like you should totally do that business or whatever it is. And then can you reflect that back on yourself? And I just want to say, I mean, credit me or not, none of this is original. Like this yeah. is the other thing, too. I think what I bring in this book is potentially an original structure. I'm really good at seeing what's present and is sometimes not said or spoken or given shape or words, but is something that we all recognize mm -hmm. as soon as it's brought into our awareness. So I think that that's one of my gifts sure. is to be able to synthesize and say it. And to be sensitive to it. 
I would say even above synthesize. Yeah. Yeah. And to feel it. I would say it even starts with the feeling of it and then working backwards to identify it and synthesize it. And one of the things, speaking of womanhood, sisterhood, and sort of what hopefully can become a real sisterhood, feels a little bit more like a sorority sometimes, Mm. but there's this woman, her name's Gerda Lerner. She uh, is a historian, academic, was the first woman to create like a, a formal women's studies program, maybe at a PhD or master's level. And she wrote this book called The Creation of Patriarchy, and then one called The Creation of Feminine Consciousness. And she offers a statistic that there are something like only 400 women who are known to historians until like the year 1500 or something like that. I mean, this shouldn't surprise anyone. Women weren't literary, yeah, whatever, yeah. extremely patriarchal. Like, But that the few literate known women were typically cloistered because that was the only way to escape being chattel slavery and married and having a ton of children, absent birth control. And so they were typically would choose to become nuns and be cloistered so they could think and write. And they were writing in silos, coming to the same conclusion, but separated from each other by space and time. Mm. And... There was something about that that was so stunning. And to now have the ability, because our story has been almost exclusively told by men. I think it's a pretty single lens story. We know from Barbie how disconcerting it is to see the opposite, right? Like it's disorienting. But that's what we're living in is a disorienting world told from a single gendered perspective. And so with the book, I wanted to bring all of these women into conversation in one house. You know, there are amazing books about women in anger, women in food, women in work, women in sex. And there are men in the book too. But to bring everyone into one house so that we could understand how these conversations are interrelated, connected, and all be in conversation with each other. And I wanted to facilitate that as much as possible. Because the more we can actually be with each other and hear each other and speak our truths, not our fake truths, as you were saying, Mm -hmm. like the feigned vulnerability, Mm -hmm. which is so toxic, the more I think we can recognize like, okay, this is what it could feel like. This is how we actually are if we can relax into a world where we could support each other and not subtly destroy each other. Yeah. And it gives it gives way to each of us individually showing up in terms of our own mm-hmm. gifts. I don't mean individually alone. It allows yeah. for that as the example of you in the room with all these women that there was no two that had the same dream for themselves or because they were allowed to completely be honest about who they wanted to be versus who am I relative to her. Yes. I am so aware of our time. And so I want to get us to the fast five. And I have a million more questions for you. So I'm going to save that for when we're at the event. And Liberty listeners, we will be sharing that conversation with you. So you'll get more of Elise. But I want to go through our fast five. And I'm so curious about these with you, especially the book one. But what's a daily practice that you do to keep yourself grounded? Okay. So when I wake up, Mm -hmm. 30 seconds. Before I reach for my phone, which is my first instinct, I just run energy. 30 seconds, I just move energy up and down my body 
I think about what I'm grateful for. I think about my children, my husband, my parents, my brother. I ask for a veil of protection. It's very fast. And then I can pick up my phone. And it's literally just a mindset when you say that. There are people who are like, just what is she mindset. saying? It's just literally from head to toe thinking about being conscious of yourself and these people in your life. Yes. And just starting there and starting also with this like, let whatever needs to permeate yeah. this shield of protection, yeah. but like let it deflect what I don't really need. Yeah. It's just a way of starting the day. I'm not a, unfortunately, I wish I were a meditator. I'm just not. Yeah. So it's like my version of starting with gratitude. It's a good version. I like it. And what are you reading? What is Elise reading? We all want to know. Oh my God. So many things. So many things that I read on my Substack and it's mix of podcasts, upcoming podcast guests, and then just the stuff that I'm consumed with. And I have been on a dive into shadow. Uh Again, like I don't think I'm done with badness, goodness. What are they in absolute? I just finished The Origin of Satan Mm. by Elaine Pagels. She's one of my favorite. She's at Princeton I have been reading a lot of Llewellyn Von Lee. I am about to start Morality, Restoring the Common, Good and Divided Times. And then I also have lined up um, Integral Psychology by Ken Wilber, who's one of my favorite. He's like, I would like to put myself in his class as someone who's really good at looking at a lot of systems Mm -hmm. and then organizing them into one thing. Okay. You gave us a handful. We'll have all of those in the show notes. No, it's awesome. And then this particular season of life that you're in, you're early in this midlife journey. What is it bringing to you? What is it affording you that perhaps you didn't have in your 20s and 30s? Hopefully spaciousness. That's what I really want to maintain. And I recognize like the tendency to say yes and really trying to do that from not a place of fear but what am I trying to cultivate and what is a full body yes for me? Mm. And then not pathologizing. You know, I think for so long, it's very convenient and we live in this culture and now we see it with menopause, Mm -hmm. pathologizing and turning in commodification and commercialization, but just like not always looking for problems to solve, (laughs) giving myself some peace and having some faith that Fixing myself is not necessarily a mental thing. Like my body has a lot of intelligence and a lot of wisdom. So just letting it do its thing. You talk about that in the book. And just for those who haven't yet read On Our Best Behavior, there's some really poignant pieces about you recognizing your body, almost treating it as other Mm -hmm. and facing it and honoring it. Thanks for bringing that Mm -hmm. up. Uh, And then your 25-year-old self, what would you want to tell her about this season? Like, don't worry about it or, oh my gosh, it's endless or yuck. Mm. (laughs) What would you want her to know? I mean, I can be a little bit of a fatalist in the sense that I think that things unfold as they need to. So I'm not sure I would, I feel like I was learning all sorts of lessons. I think that's sort of a foundational belief that I had that I would have said, like, this is the thing. Continue to follow your curiosity. Mm-hmm. This is a weird meandering path. It's never straightforward. But just, like, learn. Keep learning and putting those arrows in your quiver. I'll share that with my 20-year-old daughter. And <laughs> how has writing on our best behavior, how has 
launching the podcast, Pulling the Thread, which we didn't talk about. Everyone listen to it. We'll have that again in the show notes. How have those two things in particular liberated you? Well, it's just a really important shift and it's hard to do. I don't know that I could have pulled this off in my 20s, Mm. but to own your own IP and your own creative capital and to feel like I'm building something that is uniquely my own, it's not necessarily something that like inherently earns a lot of money for me in this moment in time, but I am building my own world rather than being in service to other people's visions, which is also great. There's a lot of learning and power in that. As long as you continue to feel like you hold your own, not everyone can or should work for themselves, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And yet, like, for me, it's been a um, reclaiming or like, oh, this is, I can actually own my output. And that's been a big shift for me. Yeah. And I think, yes, you're right. Not everyone can work for themselves or needs to. Liberation doesn't mean working for oneself. But where do you have agency? Where can you have agency? Where can you bring your full self into into something? Elise, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for sharing your insights, your wisdom, your own learnings. I so appreciate it. And again, there'll be more Liberty listeners from Elise uh, coming to you. And uh, thanks for hanging out with us today. And we will be with you next week. Until then, bye. Liberty Road is broadcast on all platforms. Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcast, and more. If you like what you've heard, please follow, rate, and review Liberty Road on Apple Podcast and Spotify. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping you to move into your middle third with intention. Liberty Road is created by executive producer Netta Jones, supervising producer Elizabeth Windham, producer Julia Windham, and music by Jack Jones. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.